Children, if you're ready tonight, if you'd like to go downstairs for Children's Church, those of uh, you that are ready, you can make your way down to see Miss Donna downstairs. Uh, as always, you're welcome to continue to worship up here with your family if you'd like to. Um, we are going to continue our series tonight, Church, in the epistle to uh, Timothy, the letter of 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. And we come to a section now that uh, I want to take my time with not specifically tonight, but through the next few weeks, uh, because I want our church to be absolutely certain about the biblical expectations that are contained throughout the entire letter, but especially uh, in chapter 3, which is where we'll be. So the title of my message tonight is The Pastor's Role in the Church. If you remember last week, we looked at the woman's role in the church. This week, we're going to look at the pastor's role in the church. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me tonight, and we're just going to read one verse, the first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and we will then go to the Lord in prayer. So Paul writes this word to Timothy in verse 1. This saying, or the saying, is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of overseer, Bishop, if you're using the King James Bible, he desires a noble task. Father, we thank you tonight. I thank you for the opportunity to have many titles in my life. Father, husband, son, and pastor. Lord, I'm thankful that that call does not originate with man. It doesn't come from a church. It comes from you. And Lord, I'm thankful that uh, you would find people so unworthy as myself to be able to stand and do uh, what I get to do every day and every week from this pulpit. So Lord, I pray that you open our eyes and our hearts to see what the Word of God says about uh, those that are called to oversee and shepherd your local flock and congregation. God, help me tonight to be biblical uh, and help our congregation receive this without, uh, without any preconceived ideas, and to simply let the Word speak. And Father, we pray tonight, especially for the one that may be lost here, uh, that comes to church each week, but is not part of the church by faith in Christ. Lord, tonight we ask you to deal with that heart, uh, and show them the great love, that living you did love them, and dying you provided a way for salvation. You were buried in that tomb, and three days later you rose again, and you ascended to the right hand of the Father, where you're seated now until you come back for your church. God, we rejoice in that good news tonight and pray that you will honor your word as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This has been going around, this little uh, story, illustration that I'm going to read to you. It's been around for a long, long time. I don't know specifically who wrote it or when it was written. Uh, I think it's been edited and changed throughout the years, but basically all of these that I've seen is the same. It's titled, The Perfect Pastor. The perfect pastor. It goes like this. The perfect pastor preaches great heartfelt messages in less than 20 minutes. He can sing tenor and a tad of bass to a mixture of contemporary, traditional, with a touch of southern gospel. He greets everyone in all services. He's the first to arrive and he's the last one to leave as he must lock the doors and turn out all the lights. He works 10 hours a day doing custodial work, mowing the churchyard, makes at least 10 calls, visits shut-ins, evangelizes others, and as he returns home, prays for missionaries. 
He receives $125 a week, buys his clothes from Goodwill, drives an old car, and his wife uses coupons. He is involved in all projects, fellowship, and cleanup. He's 25 years old but has the wisdom of an elder. He is tall but appears short. He has one brown eye and one blue eye. He parts his hair in the middle. The left side is curly and the right side is straight. He loves to work with young people but spends all his time with the older folks. He smiles with a straight face. He's never out of his office. He's always there when you are sick. He understands email, Facebook, computers, internet, iPads, and iPhones, and he loves to receive your emails, calls, texts, and drop-in visits. All members love him from the nursery to those in the back seats. He understands all sides of all problems and always has the right solution. His wife never complains, continually smiles, listens to everyone, and stands by his side. His children set a good example for all children. He is the perfect pastor. But there are three problems. One, there is only one of him. Two, you don't have him. Three, you never will. Because the perfect pastor does not exist because everybody's got an opinion of what that perfect pastor should look like, act like, talk like, and so on. And so, rather than try to be the perfect pastor, which I know I'm not and never will be, and rather than you being a member seeking a church that has a perfect pastor, let's strive for a biblical one. Let's strive for a biblical one, which is all I'm really concerned with at the end of the day of being. So when we look at our text tonight, and as we've looked at this letter, I hope that we've learned a few things already along the way. Number one, first and foremost, the church, the universal church and every local church belongs to Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says that he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or of first rank in order is really what that's saying there. So he is the head of the church. No man runs the church. Christ runs and owns the church because he purchased it with his own blood. So that's one thing we've learned. Another thing we've seen is the church is not specifically a building. We gather in a building just as they gathered in homes uh, in the early church because if they set up a building like this on the corner, the Roman authorities would have burned it down and arrested everyone and probably killed them. So a lot of people say, well, having a church building is not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes people meeting in homes. They did that out of necessity, not because they had to uh, do that. That's not a biblical mandate. Nothing wrong with house, house churches. Many places still have them. Most of those still have them because they're persecuted for their faith, right? And so I'm thankful for buildings, but the church is not a building. It is the people. The ecclesia is the Greek word for church, and that is a called-out assembly. It has nothing to do with the building. It's an assembly of people meeting together. Romans 12.5 says, So we, believers, though many, individually, there's all kinds of individuals in this room, but we are one body in Christ. And individually, listen to what he says, members of one another. We, we just took members into the church, but that's not just so you can have your name on a roll and have a building that you're tied to. You have joined a family. You're members of one another. We, we weep with those who weep 
and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, and that is what a church ought to be, is a body that serves one another in love, right? And so we saw that the church is not a building, it's people. Uh, and then, obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about what the church exists for. Uh, the church exists to glorify God, number one. It is his body on earth uh, that he left here to carry out the Great Commission uh, for, for him as, as he sent the Holy Spirit. And so we glorify him. We proclaim the gospel to the nations, starting in our own homes and out into the cities and the hedges and highways and byways. And beyond, through missions, uh, we spread the gospel to the whole world. We make disciples, right? Our call is to make disciples, to teach sound doctrine, to teach the word of God to people. To observe the ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's Supper, he left for his church to be observed. To care for the poor and the widow and the outcast, it's the duty of the church. Uh, and to serve one another within the body in love and humility. Those are some of the reasons why the church exists, why we are a body of believers together. And finally, God, uh, as we're going to look at tonight, God gifts and calls men to oversee these assemblies. He gifts, so shepherding, Ephesians 4.11, talks about he gave some to be shepherds, pastors, as a gift, right? So we know that shepherding is a spiritual gift, and he calls men to oversee these local assemblies. And that's what we're going to begin looking at tonight. And so Paul writes to Timothy in verse 1. He says, in the ESV translation that I use, the saying is trustworthy. Some other translations may say this saying is true, this saying is faithful, okay? And so Paul uses this language five times in what we would call the pastoral epistles. What are the pastoral epistles? They are the letters that he wrote to two young men that were going to be pastors. We're in one of those now, 1 Timothy. Obviously the other one, 2 Timothy. And the third one is Titus, who was a pastor in, in Greece, in Crete. So those three letters are the pastoral epistles. And in those three letters, Paul uses the language, this saying is trustworthy. He uses that phrase five times in those letters. Uh, and I bring that up because he is stressing points there of great importance. And so we ought to take attention, uh, pay attention rather, to what he's saying. So let me kind of go a little deeper into that because I think it's important that we understand you know, what the, the apostle is saying and what the scriptures are saying. So when, when we pray, whether it's out loud here in church or when you pray at home, how do you normally close your prayer? Amen. In Jesus' name, amen, right? Amen. So let me show you a few scriptures with that word in it. Psalm 41.13, so I'm going to start in the Old Testament. Psalm 41.13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Okay? So you see that there. Amen is, in fact, a Hebrew word. But they would not say it, amen. That's the, that's the English way of saying it. Amen is the Hebrew. Okay? And you don't need to know that uh, because it doesn't really matter. But Amen is how they say it. We say amen or amen, or if you're Baptist, you don't say anything. But regardless, there's different ways of saying it, right? I know I can always count on Miss Rosie for an amen, and I appreciate it. 
But why I bring that up is it's a Hebrew word. Obviously, the Old Testament scriptures are written in Hebrew. The New Testament's written in Greek. And so when the Hebrew scriptures were translated from the Old Testament into the, New, into the Greek, rather, called the Septuagint. Again, you don't need to know all this. But they just took that Hebrew word and transliterated it into the Greek. So it didn't change. You see, Amen. In the Old Testament, you see Amen in the New Testament. Let me show you that. First Timothy 1.17, which we talked about about a month or so ago. Uh, he's, Paul finishes up his, his portion of that, that text by saying, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay? So let me ask you another question. If we close our prayers with Amen, what does that mean? Does anybody have any idea or is that just something we tack on there but we really don't know what we're saying? We just say it. There you go. Very good. So be it. Or let it be done. Right? So very good. Uh, so be it. So when we say amen, we are, we are relating to the fact that what was spoken is a true saying. What did Paul say? What does he say? This saying is what? True. Trustworthy. So it's the same kind of idea when we, when we would use the word Amen. There's a truth behind it. The statement that is being made is affirming that what was spoken is true. That's why I always kid you guys. If I say, Jesus Christ is coming back soon for His church. I don't want you to just say, Amen. I mean, it does get the preacher a little bit excited when I know you're not sleeping, right? But more than that, if, if you say something biblical that's true and you all agree with it, I mean, you say, that's right, preacher. Keep on preaching, brother. Or you can just say amen. And that means, I agree 100%. So be it. Come on, Jesus. Come, we're waiting for you, right? That's why you say amen. It's not just a Pentecostal thing. It's a biblical thing, right? So it's okay to say that. But let me take it a step further with this, this amen thing. I just want you to see this. And I hope it will help you as you study the Scriptures. 25 times about in the Gospels, Jesus would start off some sayings when he was teaching. He, he would use a little saying where he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Same idea, same, same, same idea, right? Do you know what word he was using there? Amen. Amen. So really, truthfully, he was saying, amen, amen. Instead of verily, verily, it was amen, amen, right? And so let me give you one of those. John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What is the difference between closing with amen and Jesus opening a statement with amen? So we already know when we, when we close with that, we're saying, yes, we agree. We're affirming that truth that was just spoken. Amen. So let it be. Right? So be it. But what is Jesus doing when he opens with that? Well, number one, exactly. Number one, he is pronouncing a truth. But more than that, when Jesus speaks it, he speaks it as the very source of truth. He, it, it not only is a true saying, it originates from the one himself that is true as the living Word, right? The Word that became flesh. So when Jesus says these statements, verily, verily, amen, amen, He's saying what I'm about to speak is true 
and it carries with it my own, my own, so to speak, uh, power behind it, my authority behind it as I speak that word. Why, do I, why did I take all that time to bring those things up to you? Because I want you to understand, a pastor has no authority in the church of his own making. Zero. Zero authority for the pastor of his own agenda or making. Okay? And that's been a problem in a lot of churches because we've seen too often, especially in these bigger churches, as they grow, sometimes pride, which can be a struggle for anyone, right? But pride can creep in and cause a problem where the pastor begins to try to dictate authoritatively in ways that go beyond the Scripture. Because the pastor has no authority in his own power, but all authority that he does wield comes from what has been bestowed upon him as a pastor, as a called man of God, recognized by that local church through the Word of God. Everything that the pastor does to lead, to oversee, to discipline, to instruct, has got to be grounded in the Word of God because the authority comes from the head of the church, which is Christ. And so, just like we said, when Jesus would speak, verily, verily, what He was saying contained with it truth, but it carried with it authority. The Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God. Everything that we have is inspired by God. And so when you open this book, when I preach from this book, when we sing scriptural passages, or, or if we sang the Psalms, it doesn't matter. We are speaking the very Word of God, which carries with it the very authority of God. It at no time ceased to be authoritative. The Baptist faith is called, we have been historically called people of the book. Right? The, Reform, the Reformation cry was sola scriptura, scripture alone, and regardless of if we would identify as a Reformed type of church or not, I believe that all of us would say that sola scriptura, that scripture alone is sufficient for a rule and practice and faith. I think we would all agree, I hope we would all agree, that this has the final say and authority in our lives if we are to live a true Christian life in obedience to Him. Amen? 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 Right? Alright, very good. So the pastor has no authority of himself. All authority given to him as a called man of God comes through and by the Word of God. Totally. Alright? So let me give you um, a couple verses here. Some of these you'll probably be familiar with, I hope. Mark 16.15 He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Here's your bonus question. What is the Greek word for proclaim? Good job. Good job. We are called to Caruso to proclaim. That's not just given to a pastor. The duty of the church, the duty of every born-again believer, is to proclaim the good news. Because you are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you heard the good news, turned from your sin and trusted Him, He saved you. And that good news was the message. And now that we have that message, we're called to give it to others. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach, K. Russo, the Word. Preach the Word. Be ready 
in season and out of season. I say this all the time. I've heard Mark say it many, many times. The number one reason why people will not share their faith, do not share their faith, is out of fear. They say, well, I don't know if I have the, all the answers. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if, uh, if they reject me. And so we're always waiting for the right time, and the right time never comes. Right? Paul said, proclaim the word in season and out of season. When it's convenient and when it's not convenient, when it might be comfortable, when it's uncomfortable, when you're standing in front of a church full of really nice people or in a hostile room full of atheists, if God's called you to proclaim that message, you proclaim it. Because here's the thing that I think we forget, and this is, I've preached on this before and, and I need to preach on it again probably at some point. We think about sinning as things that we're not supposed to do that we do. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't cut people off. Or if they cut us off, we shouldn't say nasty names about them. Right? All those things that we shouldn't do. And when we break one of those rules, we say, man, I've sinned. I did something that I shouldn't have done. We call those sins of commission. We do things that we shouldn't do. Did you know that there's sins of omission too? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, the Bible says. When God calls you to do something, and you say, no, I don't think so, that's a sin. That's a sin. To ignore the Word of God on an issue is a sin. And so I, I, I say that to say that how often do we, do we sin in omitting the things that God has called us to do? Every day, right? And so, but we focus so much on trying to, trying to be good on this side and not do bad things, you know, we want to be morally upright, but we, we ignore the, all the things that God's calling us to do. And, and we can't neglect to look at that side of our, our walk either. Um, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let me give you one more. Second Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim, K. Russo, what we proclaim is not ourselves, not up here preaching us. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's our message. That's the pastor's message. That is what's been given to you. We have no authority other than what comes by the Word of God, but we have all authority because He has given us that in His Word. Right? The Word of God is quick. That means life-giving. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Over and over and over, we see the importance of the Scriptures. Right? And so when you go out to witness... Don't worry about having fancy words, because if you could speak as fanciful as any man that's ever lived, there's no power in your words. The power is in this book. The power is in this word. That's what changes lives, right? So, I mean, if you're so fearful and trembling that you can't even get any sound to come out of your mouth, just open up the book and go like that and give it to them and let them read it, and that's enough, because that's what's going to change their heart, not the way you deliver it. It's not about that. The authority comes through the Holy Spirit's power as the Word of God is pressed upon their hearts, as He draws them and convicts them and gives them an opportunity to respond to what has been preached. That's what we do every week here. 
We deliver the Word of God to you and then say, what will you do with this? How will you respond to this? To not respond is a sin of omission. To stay in your seat and say, well, I know what I ought to do, but fill in the blank and not do it is, a, is to make a decision. A decision to reject what God has called you to do. And so our authority is not in ourselves. It comes through Christ. And we have that authority with Him. So, number one, I wanted you to see that. This saying is trustworthy. It's true. Pay attention to what is getting ready to be said. Then what does Paul write? If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, if you're using the King James, or I probably believe the New King James would translate it the same way, it uses the word desire twice. I know the King James does for sure. If any man desires... Uh, the work of an overseer, the office of a bishop, he desires a noble task or a good work, right? The reason why other translations such as mine and, and the NIV and the NASB use two different words, mine says aspire and then desire, is because that's two different Greek words. And so the King James uses the same word twice, which doesn't, I'm not saying it's a bad translation, it just doesn't bring out the emphasis of what the original is trying to say. Because there is a difference the first Greek word used for desire or aspire, uh, in, in this case, in the ESV, is speaking about an outward action. It literally means, the Greek means to stretch yourself out upon. And so he says if anyone desires the office of an overseer or a bishop, he desires a good work. The second word is speaking of an inward prompting, an inward calling, an inward burden. And so when a man is called, I know, Mark, I'm sure you've had these conversations throughout the years with young men, and I have had the privilege with, with Caleb and Tavish and many other young men that I've, I've had a chance to talk to. One of the questions that always arises, and rightly so, it should, how do I know for certain that I'm called? How do I know? How do I know? I love what Charles Spurgeon, you know, you knew you were going to get one. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I think this is about as plain of a bit of advice, certainly not the only advice you could give, but some that I've stolen uh, for myself and given to other people over the years is what Charles Spurgeon said about how do I know if I'm called. He puts it as simple as this. If there is anything else a man can do other than preach, he ought to do it. The pulpit is no place for him. The ministry is not merely something an individual can do, but what he must do. To enter the pulpit, that necessity, I love that he uses that word necessity, must be laid upon him. Being a pastor is hard. I'm not saying that because I want your pity. I'm just saying that being a pastor is difficult for any pastor. I've talked to enough of them. I've, got, I've gotten private messages and letters. I've sat in offices with men that pastor local churches right here in this area, and they've wept over things that they have heard, that they have experienced, that their family has endured. And the reason why they haven't turned away and walked out is because God's got His hand on them, He's called them, and there's nothing else in this life that they could do. Me and God had a lot of long talks 
about letting me out of this deal. I, I, sometimes I'm just too honest, ain't I? I? Hey, there's no reason for me to sugarcoat anything with you or with anybody else. There's been seasons in my life where this has been so heavy that I beg God to let me go off this deal. I'm just being honest. And it's not just me, guys. Like I said, I'm just too much of an open book. But I've got, I've got messages on my phone from pastors telling me the same thing. I wish God would let me off the hook of this call so I could go back to cutting grass. But when God calls you, there's no retirement plan. Puts his hand on you and he says, I never promised, like that old crab family song, never promised that the cross would not get heavy or the hill would not be hard to climb. He never promised a victory without fighting, but he said help would always come in time. Right? And so when it gets tough, that's no time for us to jump ship, even though the flesh says get out of Dodge. Right? But the reason why I'm here, why Mark's here, why many other faithful men of God are still doing this is because we couldn't do anything else. Tried it. Can't do it. It consumes you because God calls you and fills you with a purpose that is to glorify Him. And if He glorified the Father through His suffering, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Right? And so we have our pity parties. We've all done it. I do it. But at the end of the day, we know the high calling that we have, the responsibility that we have, and we know that He's never going to leave or forsake us. And so, men, if you ever ask, am I called? Know that difficult seasons will come, that trials will come, that difficulties will come, but if God has called you, He'll get you through it. And there's nothing else that you would ever imagine doing, even though at times it sounds good and the enemy says walk away. You could never do that. Let me give you another quote from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones about this call. He says, The divine calling, it grips the soul and governs the spirit. It becomes an overwhelming obsession that cannot be discarded. It will not go away or leave a man. Jeremiah tried to get out of the call, the prophet Jeremiah, and he said when I tried to, basically paraphrasing, when I tried to bite my tongue and, and not speak, it burned inside of me of like, a, like my bones were on fire when I, couldn't, when I didn't proclaim the word. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There becomes no way of escape. Such a strong force lays hold of the man that he has held captive. You do your utmost to push back and to rid yourself of the disturbance in your spirit, which comes in these various ways, but you reach a point when you cannot do so any longer. It becomes an obsession and is so overwhelming that in the end, you say, I can do nothing else. I can resist no longer. I ran from God's call, and most guys I've talked to did the same. But there comes a point where you said, no matter how much I run, I know that this is where God wants me, and I know this is what he's called me to, and I'm done running. And that's the reality of it. And so Paul says this is a true saying. Pay attention. If you desire internally and you put forth the effort externally to answer and, and answer and obey the call of God, you're desiring something precious. It's a good work. It's a noble task. It's a high calling. I would say it's the greatest, most humbling experience that a man can have on earth is to be a spokesman for God. In the Old Testament, there was prophets, and in the New Testament, there's preachers. And what a responsibility to speak. As we have the Scriptures now completed, the canon is complete, we have all 66 books, but we're still speaking on behalf of God. 
Not with new revelations each week, but with the complete, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. What an amazing duty that we get. And so, one more thing that I want you to see tonight that's so important, especially for us as a new church that has stepped out uh, and just recently uh, did nominations at our business meeting, and uh, one of those things that you saw on there was pastor and elder, and I know that for some of you that's new, for others that's more familiar, uh, but I want you to understand biblically why we felt led in that direction uh, and what that means if you're not sure. So... Basically, in the Scriptures, there are three Greek words, which again, that's what the New Testament was written in Greek. Three Greek words translated into as many as, if, if you use King James especially, as many as five English words. Three Greek words translated in as many as five English words. The five English words mean the same thing. They mean the same thing. They, they, they may carry different emphasis behind them, but they're the same office. They're the exact same office. Let me, let me show that to you real quick. Uh, as we look at these words, you're going to see in English, overseer. You're going to see bishop. You're going to see elder. You're going to see shepherd. And you're going to see pastor. Those are the five English words. Now, again, some other translations aren't going to have uh, bishop and uh, pastor in there. They're going to use the other, term, the other English term that means the same thing. But regardless, when we look at those words, they all are the same office. They're just speaking about different, different roles, different emphasis of those things. So, I am an elder. I'm, I, I am mature. It speaks of the, someone that is mature in a sense in the faith. I'm not a novice. I didn't just get saved last week, right? And we'll look at the qualifications next week. Uh, but I'm not a novice. I'm not someone newly saved. Uh, an elder carries with it the idea that we have, we have been uh, called into a position and, and we, we exercise spiritual maturity, so to speak. So I, I, I am an elder. I am a pastor. I feed you through the Word of God. I am a shepherd. I lead you and protect you from false teaching and things that would lead you astray. I, I am an overseer. I try to cast a biblical vision and, and make sure that we go in a direction that ultimately brings glory to God and, and honors Him in His church. And so all those titles are the same office with just different emphasis of the ministry. So let me give you um, some scriptures as we, as we kind of wrap this up that look at what does an elder do? What does a pastor do? What does a shepherd do? What does an overseer do? Uh, and when we look at the words like bishop um, and, and uh, pastor, th those are not Greek words, really. Th those are Latin words. Um, because the King James Version was translated uh, through the Greek text, but also a lot of the Latin Vulgate was used. And so that word pastor, the Greek word's poimen, right? And so uh, the idea is coming in that those words are in there, but really for, for the scriptures like the ESV, the word shepherd and overseer actually bring out the idea of the Greek. So a lot there. I'm not trying to confuse you. Just want you to understand when you see those words, they're all talking about the same guy. Right? There's no difference. Mark was elected to be an elder. He's a pastor in this church. Right? We have different duties. I may be the lead preaching, teaching pastor, but Mark has all the same call, qualifications and callings 
uh, in the scriptures that I do. There's no difference, right? We may carry out different roles within the church. We can't both stand up here and preach together. I mean, we could probably. probably wouldn't sound very good if we're both up here preaching at the same time, right? But Mark preaches, I preach. We, we, let me just give you some scriptures and you'll see this. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, same guy, let the elders who rule well, now again, when you see that word rule, we're not up here. Again, I told you, the pastor has no authority. I'm not up here as a dictator. I'm not up here trying to uh, push my will upon you, right? We rule, we lead, we oversee by the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So again, when you read the scriptures and you see the word elder, it's always plural. You'll never find a verse in scripture that speaks of one elder. Which is why when we started K. Russo Church, I believed in a plurality of elders within the body. Now, obviously, we're a small church, and you have to have men that are called and qualified. And so as we grow, I believe God will call and, and lead more men to that office. But for now, we have two elders in the church. Plurality, which is what you see in the Scriptures. And he says in that text, let those elders rule well, but there's some that are going to specifically labor in preaching and teaching. We're all called... As a, as a pastor, we're all gifted in a sense that we preach and teach the Word of God. But again, in a church where there's a plurality of elders, not every single pastor is going to be preaching on that same week. It's impossible, right? And so that's what he's saying is that the elders rule and they teach and preach when the opportunity arises. That's part of our duty. Let me give you another one, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders. Again, that's not a dictator saying, okay, church, I'm here. Snap to it and do what I say. You obey as we all obey the Word of God. Right? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch. We're shepherding. We're making sure that you don't get attacked from false teaching and false teachers. Obey your leaders. Submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do you know that for each and every one of you as individuals, the only person that you're ever going to have to give an account for is you? When you stand before God, the only, and that's enough, the only person you're going to have to worry about is you. But did you know that me and Brother Mark, when we stand before God, we not only give an account for ourselves, we give an account for everybody that we've taught and has sat under our ministry? You think that's not a big responsibility? You wonder why sometimes pastors do get a little bit forceful when they say, no, this is what we need to do? because at the end of the day, we're the ones that's going to stand before God and give an account. You may have a different opinion that goes against the Word of God, but I'm not going to compromise on the Word of God because, number one, that's a sin against me, and number two, I've got to give an account for why I let you run off in the church and do something unbiblical. It's not worth it. To me, it's not worth it. I understand what's going to take place when I stand before God, and I want to make sure I've done everything I can to stand before him and say, Lord, I tried to shepherd your people in love biblically as well as I could without compromising. And so he says, obey them, submit to them. They watch over your souls. They'll give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's a joy to pastor. It's difficult, but in the, in the end, it's a great joy and privilege, and I'm thankful for this church and for all of you. 
It's a wonderful responsibility and a joy to see you growing in Christ. Which is, again, why we, why we say, oh, where you been? We haven't seen you. We worry about you, right? When, we, when you don't show up, it's not that we're trying to get in your business and where you been and, how, you know, guilt you. We care. We have to give an account for you. If the sheep wanders, we want to know where you went. That's all. Because we care. James 5.14 Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for who? Plural, right? Right? Elders. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over that person, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Elders are praying people. We, we, we shepherd, we preach and teach the Word of God, we lead and cast vision, we pray for our people. We pray for our people. That was the reason why the early church had to call deacons is because the pastors were getting tied up serving and they couldn't preach and pray. Right? And so we'll look at deacons in a few weeks and what their biblical call is. But elders are to be the front-line defense when it comes to praying. That doesn't mean that nobody else prays. It doesn't mean anybody else can go visit and put oil on a sick person. But that is a call that we are to do, to pray for the sick. One more. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2 says, I exhort the elders, again, plural, among you as a fellow elder, so Peter's calling himself an elder too, pastor, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is with you, or that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We're not in this thing to build up a big prideful reputation. We're not in this thing to get rich. We're in this thing because God has called us. There's nothing else we can imagine doing. And it's a love and a joy to serve our Savior and to love and serve His people. Amen. That's it. That is, that is the role of the pastor in the church. That's why we do, if you're biblical, that is why we do what we do. And again, I'm here for one reason tonight. Is because God saved me and called me. I wasn't looking for God. I was running from God. I loved the world. I loved the world. I'll tell you I loved the world. I loved all the things that I was doing. But God loved me more. And He chased me down. As fast as I ran, He caught me. And He said, I'm calling you out of this world to myself. <clears throat> and I'm going to save you if you will repent and believe. And He saved me. He saved me from my sins when I wanted nothing to do with Him. He wanted something to do with me. And that's the amazing thing about God. He loves us while we were yet sinners. When we were out there playing in the world, living it up, He's pursuing us. And He might be pursuing you tonight. You might be here. You might be playing church. You might be putting on a good show, but you're lost. You're lost. Because there's never been a real change in your life where you've met God and unmistakably you know that He came into your life and He's changed you. He's coming for you tonight. Not with the rod of judgment. You'll stand before Him one day in judgment if you keep rejecting Him. But He's offering Himself tonight to you as a Savior that loves you and bled and died for you. Living, He loved you. Dying, He saved you. Buried, He carried your sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. That's the good news. And, and he decided to take it a step further. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it wrong. 
So I guess he got it right. But he called me to preach and pastor a church. So not only did he find me and save me, he called me to pastor. And he may not be calling you to pastor tonight if you're saved, but he may, I'm, I'm certain of this, he calls everybody to something. Big or small, like that old hymn where you sing, little as much when God is in it. It doesn't matter what the title is or what the job description is. What matters is when he calls, will he answer? And we have all kinds of needs in this church, obviously. It's a new church. We have needs for helpers with the children's department. We have a set of drums here and a keyboard that we're pursuing and a choir that we're trying to get together and some really good youth that would love to have a leader. There's a lot of stuff, and I'm not saying that you just jump in there just because. But if God has been knocking on your door and you keep peeking through the blinds but you won't answer, He knows you're in there. And at some point you're going to have to answer because you're going to be miserable until you do. And so tonight, we're going to give an invitation. And if you're lost, He's knocking on your door. You need to respond. And if you know that there's something that He's calling you to do and you're scared to death, not ready to do it, that's what faith is all about. Will you answer? Father, I thank You tonight that You're knocking on doors. I thank You that... 20 years ago now, you knocked on my heart. And I'm thankful that I had enough sense that when you convicted me, I came. And I'm thankful that you saved me. And I know along the way, I've fallen short many times. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And I'm glad that I've given you a thousand reasons not to love me, and not one of them has ever pushed you away. I'm thankful tonight that you are a friend to sinners, and that you, uh, that you love them and that you love the person in this room tonight that's lost, that's been running from you. And God, tonight I pray that they'll bend their knee and give their heart to you. And God, I know that you're calling folks to serve, and I know how scary that is, and just the thought of it causes a panic attack. But God, that's because you're going to get the glory through them. If you could take a shy, introverted kid that would never stand in front of people and stick him up in front of a crowd of people to preach the gospel, if you can do that for me, you can do it for them in whatever capacity. So God, as we give this invitation and as your spirit moves, please, Lord, draw them to yourself. And we're going to give you praise tonight for whatever happens in Jesus' name. Amen.